Amen. That I'd like to direct your attention to are found once again in the book of Mark. And we'll begin at Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early, very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. So the the women were understandably surprised when they come upon the tomb and see a young man dressed in gleaming white clothes, telling them that Jesus is no longer there. And just as they were surprised, You likewise might be surprised to find out that uh, this will be our final sermon on the book of Mark. And that's because the book ends in verse 8. Now, I realize, of course, there's more there in verses 9 through uh, 20. But um, most of you probably have a parenthesis or or a note in your Bibles that explain that this is actually that path, that path. Other ending of Mark isn't actually in the earliest manuscripts. Um, the additional ending was probably added because um, the the ending of the Gospel of Mark in verse eight just seems really strange. But it's actually not strange if you understand what Mark has been doing through his whole gospel, and I'll try to point that out again this morning. Um, but I, I do understand that that might be somewhat confusing. Why does why is this additional text here. And so next week, what I plan to do is to talk about this second ending of Mark. I won't preach on it because I don't think it's uh, the word of God. I think it's just a man-made ending to it. But I'll explain why and actually get into what we call textual criticism and explain how do we know the Bible that we have actually is the word of God? How do we know that the scriptures we have really are God's word or are they just man-made ideas that people have put together. And uh, I, I would encourage you to come. That might sound boring initially, but it's actually really encouraging. Um, when you understand textual criticism, what it does, is it proves, it really authenticates the Word of God that we have is the Word of God. And there's many reasons uh, to be beyond just the fact that this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. There's many other reasons that point to the fact that this, this really wasn't written by Mark. And we'll talk about that next week. Also, along with that just explanation of textual criticism, um, we'll also be giving a summary of the book of Mark, looking back on everything that we've seen so far and reviewing, again, what, was, what is Mark's message uh, in his gospel? So, um, 
as mentioned uh, last week, these final eight verses that end the book are a part of a literary structure that actually began in Mark 15, what we call what scholars like to call a, a Mark and sandwich, where Mark will tell a story. And in particular, he was talking about the three women um, after the death of Jesus, before the burial. And then he broke off and starts talking about Joseph of Arimathea. And then he returns again at the beginning of uh, chapter 16 um, to talk about the three women again. And in those Mark and sandwiches, the emphasis is really on contrasting different responses. Mark's theme throughout his gospel is how do people respond to the life and teachings of Jesus? And Mark wants to contrast Joseph of Arimathea's response, his, this, this member of the Sanhedrin who boldly goes to Pilate and asks to bury Jesus' body and then puts Jesus' body in his own tomb. And he wants to contrast that with the timidity, the fearful response of the women. And that's what we'll look at today. There's really three responses that stand out, and this constitutes the outline for today. The women are described as perplexed in verses 1 through 4, amazed in verses 5 through 7, and then finally verse 8, afraid. And really all three of those uh, work together to really describe their, their response, both to the death of Jesus, but even to the resurrection. So let's begin in verse 1 at the perplexity that they feel. It begins in saying this, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. So in verse 2, we're told that this all takes place on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. Uh, That was the, the first day of the week, still is on our calendar. And the body of Jesus, we know, was buried late Friday evening. And then uh, after sundown on Friday, the Sabbath began. And so the women rested on the Sabbath. And so early on the next day, they came to the tomb um, as the sun was rising. Now, many people get confused over the fact that Jesus, therefore, could not have been in the grave for, the, the, for a full 72 hours because... Multiple times we're told that it was Jesus would be in the grave three days and then rise. Um, but what we need to recognize is the phrase after three days doesn't mean literally three days. It's an idiom. It's a it's a, uh, a figure of speech that basically means the day after tomorrow. And in fact, if Jesus were to have been in the grave a full 72 hours, then he would have risen on the fourth day, not on the third day. And so... Don't stumble over that. Again, that the, the after three days, it's just, it basically means he would, be, he, would, he would rise after being in the grave a full day. Or he would rise the day after tomorrow, so to speak. So Jesus said repeatedly that he would rise on the third day. And that's precisely what happened. He was buried sometime on Friday afternoon again in the tomb on Saturday and then risen on Sunday morning. And so Mary and Mary arrive at the tomb early on Sunday morning to anoint Jesus' body. And like the other Mary that we uh, looked at in Mark chapter 14, they want to honor Jesus' body for his burial um, by anointing him. And that's um, what they come to do. But the problem is they're a little late. 
And even as they're coming to the tomb, it dawns upon them that that the tomb might be sealed. And so they're discussing with one another, what are we going to do about the sealed tomb? How are we going to get the, the, the rock to be removed? How are we going to roll away the stone? And that's what they are discussing on their way. And this is a considerable problem. Because even the three of them together would not be able to move the stone in their own strength. And interestingly enough, the verb is imperfect, which conveys the fact that they kept on saying as they were going. So it wasn't just a one-time point that one person brought up, but they were discussing this whole problem, uh, a large part of their journey from where they were at to Jesus' tomb. But what we need to recognize is that they wouldn't be faced with this perplexing, uh, perplexing problem at all if they would have just exercised the same boldness that Joseph had exercised the day before. Instead of helping Joseph out as he takes down Jesus' body and puts it in his own tomb and anoints it with uh, his own spices, and, most, and according to another gospel, Nicodemus helped him. Maybe other people were there. But we are told in Mark that these ladies stay back, even though it's Jesus' aunt, a woman that he saved from seven demons, and his own mother. In fear and hesitancy, they choose not to help Joseph when they would have had free access to. And it's also helpful to realize Joseph wasn't a threat. I mean, they weren't in danger. They, they could have easily helped Joseph out, but they chose not to. And maybe it was because Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin that, Sanhedrin that gave them a little concern. But nevertheless, their hesitancy to help out is what resulted in this problem. They could have done it at the proper time, but their fear, their hesitancy held them back. And now they have a problem. How are they going to roll away the stone? I think likewise, many of the problems and the anxieties and things that we face uh, on a daily um, occasion are problems that wouldn't be there if we would have simply obeyed God's word in the first place. So many of the greatest challenges we face are simply the result of sin or simply the result of leaning upon our own understanding. If we would just truly listen to what God would say or... Um, exercise courage and trust in Him, we wouldn't be faced with the problems we face. And it reminds one of the famous uh, perplexing math problems that have been uh, presented to people. As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife had seven sacks. Every sack had seven cats. Every cat had seven kittens. Kittens, cats, sacks, wives, how many were going to St. Ives? And many people, when they hear that question, anxiously begin to add up all the, the math using multiplication, addition, all whatever formula they might want. But a careful listener would have recognized that, as some of you did, there is only one going to St. Ives. As I was going to St. Ives, everybody else was going in the dire- opposite direction. And I recognize there's a huge difference between a trick question like that and God's word. Trick question really wants to stump you over the trick itself. But that's but it illustrates all the more God's word is not trying to be tricky. God's word is trying to be as clear as possible. 
Jesus announced very explicitly, I, three times, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, they're going to kill me, and on, after three days I will rise. Explicit. It was clear in prophecy, and Jesus made it clear to his disciples time and time again, and yet none believed him. And because they didn't believe them, they're faced with this confusing problem. If the women would have listened, if they would have re- believed, they also wouldn't have been anxious coming to the tomb, worried about who's going to open the tomb, because they would realize he's not going to stay in the grave. And they wouldn't have been surprised at all when they show up and they see an angel there and no body. Because, oh, it's exactly as he said. It would have been confirming rather than terrifying as it was. And so even though, again, that, that, that St. Ives problem uh, is a trick question, God's word is not tricky. It's, it wants to be clear, and yet how often we just treat it like it's some trick thing that we have to, we make excuses for why we didn't obey it, why we didn't believe it. Again, if the women had just listened to what Jesus had told them, they would have understood that he would have been awaiting them in Galilee. And so the question that they were greatly perplexed with on the way to the tomb, they find answered in an amazing way. And that is the second word we'll look at, amazed, their amazement. Beginning in verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Instead of seeing a sealed tomb, they see an empty tomb and they see a, a young man sitting there dressed in gleaming white robes. And, and the garment that he's wearing is actually noteworthy. It's, it's the Greek word stole, which describes a, a kind of a royal robe, uh, like fine um, apparel, something that princes and kings would wear. Uh, often it had this uh, long train sweeping the ground. It would have uh, convey... Um, solemnity and richness and beauty, wealth. So it was this super nice clothes, this garment that he's wearing. And so it's, it's, it's not the kind of thing somebody would just be wearing around to, town, let alone somebody that's hanging out in a cemetery. So this would, just to give you a sense of what the women saw, this would be like you walking through a cemetery, turning a corner, and all of a sudden seeing a young lady in a wedding dress just sitting there waiting for you and conveying a message. That would be shocking. That's not what you'd expect somebody to be wearing. And, and, and the attire and his presence really points to the fact that this is no normal person. This is an angel. And if the presence of this Young man and the attire were amazing enough. His words are even more amazing to them. And that's why he says, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus of the Nazarene who has been crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. Now, I realize these are some of those amazing words that are ever spoken. The Son of God has been crucified and now he is raised. But they really shouldn't have been that amazing to the women. Because again, Jesus had said this is exactly what is going to happen to him. When we heard that uh, 
Calvin and Caitlin's son was born, it was great news. Um, but probably when you heard that news, it wasn't shocking because you expected him to be born. Uh, there was news that Caitlin was pregnant. They were going to have a, a child. It might have, if you had not known that Caitlin was pregnant, maybe that would have been surprising, but probably not amazing. However, if their son came out speaking in Shakespearean English immediately, that would have been amazing. That would warrant astonishment, marvel. That's how the women reacted to seeing this angel. And that's the point. The angel himself says it. Do not be amazed. There's no reason for you to be amazed. This is exactly as he told you. Just as he told you would happen. These are the words he uses. Uh, the word amazed means to marvel, to be greatly astounded and alarmed. And something that's helpful is, is to recall how Mark has used this word amazed throughout his gospel. And he's used it in a particular way. Almost always he uses it to convey a lack of faith. It conveys amazement that shouldn't be there if you recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. For instance, in Mark chapter 1, after casting a demon, casting out a demon, it says the crowd were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And then in chapter 5, after saving a, a man who'd been possessed by a legion of demons, it says, that man began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It's that same word, amazed. Chapter 9 is especially clarifying, for that's when the disciples tried to cast out a demon, but they couldn't. And it said the crowds were greatly amazed by him. But then Jesus says that he was grieved by the crowd's response, their lack of faith. He answers in verse 19. O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus describes the, the amazed crowds as a faithless generation. In other words, they shouldn't be amazed. In the next chapter, the disciples are amazed at his statement about how difficult it would be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the implication being that it's hard for them to believe. And so then Jesus follows it up saying, children, how different enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They're amazed. When they hear Jesus' words, there's a sense of unbelief. It's, it's unbelievable. They're amazed at them. But I think most importantly, I want you to look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And this is when Jesus announces a few verses Later in Mark 10, this amazing statement. Verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, 
he will rise. So Mark's use of amaze conveys a failure to really listen, to really understand, to believe what Jesus is saying. Again, the problem consistently throughout Mark is people have their own idea of what the Messiah is going to be like. They have a picture of the Messiah as one of a conquering hero that's just going to make life easy and comfortable and nice for them. And when Jesus says, the Messiah has come to, to save you from your sins and you, you need to take up your cross and follow him, he is going to be crucified. He's going to save you through crucifixion. They have a hard time grasping that. I mean, it's just, it's just as we're not shocked when we read Jesus' words and hear of his deeds. Right? When, when you read um, an account of Jesus healing a person, you're not shocked at all by that. Because you recognize Jesus is the Son of God. Of course He can heal a person. Of course, Jesus can do whatever He wants. We're not shocked anymore about what Jesus does because we recognize He's the Son of God. He can do whatever He wants. When you heard about Jesus calming the wind and the waves, if you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, He can do that. Because we believe. It's not shocking us. We're not amazed because we recognize who Jesus is. He's God. But these women are still struggling to grasp that. Their amazement actually reflects a lack of faith. And that's why the angel rebukes the women here. Because they shouldn't have been amazed. Because everything that had happened is just as Jesus had told them. Verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you. There you will see him just as he told you. That's, that's the main point. This is just as he told you. You shouldn't be amazed and you shouldn't respond in fear. Their amazement actually reflects a lack of faith. And likewise, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised when what God tells us in his word actually comes to pass. For instance, we shouldn't be surprised when we pray a specific prayer and then God answers that prayer. Because Jesus himself said, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Jesus said that we shouldn't be surprised. When we ask for something and God provides it. We shouldn't be surprised when God allows us to reap the consequences of our foolish choices. Because in Galatians 6, 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We shouldn't be surprised when people we know embrace strange teachings or begin, or begin themselves to teach false doctrines. Because Peter says in 2 Peter 2, just as false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. We shouldn't be surprised when people hate us on account of our belief in Christ. John says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
And you know well, in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so when we get persecuted, we shouldn't be amazed. We shouldn't be shocked. We should say, well, of course. This is what Jesus said was going to happen. Paul also said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, We don't want any of you to be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And But the thing is, often we, we come to the Bible and we, 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 we think of our future, we, can, we, we imagine what the next years of our life are going to be like, and we interpret, we imagine the future on the basis of um, our American cultural presuppositions rather than what the Bible says. And instead we need to read the Bible and then think through, well, what does this mean for what my should, life should look like and what, what most likely is my life going to be like given all of these statements that the Bible makes. We should not be surprised that the world hates us. We should not be surprised when persecution happens. We should not be surprised when false teachers rise up and people fall away. And we shouldn't be surprised when God answers prayer. And we won't be surprised unless we're thinking more in line with our culture and our own fleshly desires and less in line with the Bible. And that's the point. Do you really believe what God's word says or do you read the Bible just as a spiritual exercise? Do you read it as if it's trying to prepare you and inform you about what God has designed for your life? Or do you read it just like a textbook to give you help on certain challenges that you face in life? after stating the obvious that Jesus is not there, in verse 7, the angel tells the woman, go and tell the disciples that Jesus would meet them in Galilee. Really clear command. And how do they respond? They flee in fear. Instead of responding in obedience, we're told they're gripped. It actually means they're possessed by it. Is that what that word conveys? By fear and trembling. Instead of obeying a clear instruction that was really given by the Lord, this angel is just a messenger conveying what the Lord has told them to do, they disobey on account of their fear. And this is how the Gospel of Mark ends, with disobedience and fear. Brings us to verse 8. They went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That word afraid, again, it's a familiar one, phobeo. And you might recall that in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tries to, sets up many times contrasting fear with faith. In fact, he had a whole section, um, Mark 4, 1 through 6, 29, that contrasted responses of fear and responses of faith. The point being, you don't want to respond in fear but in faith. For instance, in Mark 4, after calming the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus asked his disciples, have you still no faith? 
And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The point is they shouldn't have been filled with fear if they would believe that Jesus was who he said he was. In chapter 5, it says, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. And they asked, why trouble the teacher any further? Chapter 536, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And then he saves his daughter. In Mark 6, again, the disciples get caught up on a, in a storm and Jesus comes to them walking on the waves and he says, take heart in his eye. Do not be afraid. But again, most importantly, in chapter 9, when Jesus announces to his disciples these words, consider their response. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Well, why didn't they understand the saying? It's not like Jesus is being cryptic. I mean, it's not like he's giving the saint eyes math problem. The, the reason they struggled to understand it is because they had a preconceived idea of what the Messiah was going to do. Their Messiah wasn't going to be handed over to the Gentiles and, and get crucified and then rise again. Their Messiah was going to conquer all their enemies and hook them up with great seats on their right and their left. It was going to make their life happy and wonderful and joyful. And when he said this, they were afraid because their conception, what they expected, didn't line up with what Jesus was saying. And brothers and sisters, so much of the fear and anxiety that we experience as Christians is because we really don't believe what the Bible's saying. We believe our own imaginations. We believe Disney. We believe the movies. We believe our Marvel comic books more than we believe the Word of God. Because we want to believe what we want to believe rather than really taking seriously what God says. And that's why we often respond in fear when bad things happen in life. What we don't expect happens. When viruses come and disrupt us. Or political protests. And what... What we see in Mark, in the text that I just listed, is that fear is not a commendable response. It's the, it's the opposite of faith. It's the result of failing to believe what Jesus said. And Mark's description of the women then tells us that they were still then, these, these three women, on the fence of faith. They, were, we've seen they, they, they had followed Christ. Obviously, they want to honor Him. They have strong affections for him, but their response really shows they still don't get it. They still don't get it. Now, we know that they eventually do, of course. Especially very soon for Mary Magdalene, if you're aware of the other Gospels. But they still don't get it yet. But I think what we need to recognize is that the women's failure to believe, the failure to listen, the failure to take Jesus at his word in, his, in the simplicity of his speech, their failure to believe him is what led to their fear, and their fear is what then led to their disobedience. And that is a, that is a pattern that we have seen from the very beginning. 
doubt, fear, disobedience. In fact, that's really what happened in the garden. And what happened again and again and again. We saw it today in the, in the, in the story of Caleb and Joshua and the, the tension between the two spies. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, this is how Moses summarized this whole account that we read for the scripture reading. And when the Lord sent you to Kadesh Barnea saying, go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. This is this is this was always been the pattern of Israel from the beginning, from when they were rescued from Egypt. They would they would doubt what God said. They would begin to fear. Then they would grumble and complain in disobedience time and time and time and time again. And here Jesus, mom, his aunt and a woman he saved from seven demons is doing the exact same thing. And the gospel ends there. It's astonishing. And it ends there very purposely. Because these women had just heard the most magnificent news ever uttered in the history of the world, and they were reluctant to go share it because of their fear. It's a deliberate cliffhanger. Because what it does is it challenges the reader. Are you okay with that? I mean, it's, it's making the point of Israel's unbelief and fear explicit. Are you okay with that? You too, reader, have just heard the amazing good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you okay with just keeping that to yourself? Or do you believe it? Because if you believe it, you won't keep it to yourself. You too, in obedience, will go and share it. So again, how will you respond to this gospel? That's how, that's, that's the question that Mark wants us to wrestle with. We've heard, we've seen response after response, good response, Lots of bad responses. We end with a bad response. But what really matters and what Mark cares most about, frankly, what the Holy Spirit cares most about, is how will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, we want to respond in faith. We do not want to respond in fear, and yet we acknowledge we are often, it's just, it's so easy for us to be led astray by our own feelings, by, our, by just the lies that are in the world. But we do acknowledge we, we fail to trust You. We, we do fail to, to, to really understand the clarity of Your Word, even though Your Word is clear. Lord, how often we make excuses for our unbelief and therefore our disobedience. Lord, we often even portray our fear and anxiety as as if we're victims of circumstance rather than acknowledging, no, we really just don't trust You. And Lord, I pray that You would you would make us a people who are strong and courageous, who follow the example of Moses and Caleb and Joshua, 
and the Samaritan, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, sorry, and Joseph of Arimathea, and blind Bartimaeus, and the woman with the twelve year hemorrhage, and the leader of the synagogue, and the, and the, and the garrison demoniac whom you saved. Lord, we want to be a people who are defined by faith, deep, um, rich, confident conviction that every word you spoke is absolutely true and therefore we can rest. Make us a people of faith and wash away our fear. We ask these things in Christ's name.